London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. David Nywert has been investigating the rise of the American radical right for over 40 years. In his latest book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Right's Assault on American Democracy, he examines a new age of American politics where violence is considered patriotic, as we saw in the attack on our nation's capital. And he explores how difficult it is to eradicate extremism and what we need to do to protect the future of American democracy. It's published by Melville House Books and brings award-winning investigative journalist David Nywer to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Leonard. Oh, this is important stuff. Uh, Didn't you grow up in rural southeast Idaho near Hayden Lake, where the Aryan Nation set up their headquarters in the 1970s? Not quite. I I did grow up in southeastern Idaho, uh, down in potato country, um, which is actually heavily dominated by the LDS Church. But um, uh, Hayden Lake is up in northern Idaho in the Panhandle. And I was actually had... uh, I'd worked my way. It was my first newspaper job as a young reporter um, out of college in Sandpoint, Idaho. And uh, I eventually, after about a year there, I became the editor of the paper. And, uh, you know, I was a little mom and pop shop in a small town. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, 40 miles south of us was uh, was where the Aryan Nations moved in at Hayden Lake. And so yeah. you've been reporting on them ever since you got into journalism, right? Pretty much. I mean, they've been part of, they were definitely part of my uh, uh, daily reportage for about really in the next uh, 10, 15 years. And then then in the 1990s, I uh, decided to make it a dedicated beat as I, I was starting out my uh, freelance reporting uh, career as it was. And, uh and I, you know, I had a background as an environmental reporter, and I started reporting on these uh, militias gathering and uh, organizing in the Pacific Northwest as a an anti-environmental backlash story. And um, and then after uh, Oklahoma City happened, uh, I was persuaded by a guy who organized against these groups, a man named Father Bill Wasmuth who ran an organization called the Northwest Coalition Against Malicious Harassment. Uh, Wasmuth was a former Catholic priest who had uh, had his home bombed in Coeur d'Alene uh, by the uh, the order, uh, or rather the order two, uh, the, who were these uh, violent uh, neo-Nazis who uh, assassinated people. One of many and, groups like that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so he left the priesthood and uh, to run this organization dedicated to fighting uh, right-wing extremist hate. Wasn't Aryan wasn't Aryan Nations founded in 1946 in in California as a Church of Jesus Christ Christian by a Ku Klux yes. Klan organizer named Wesley A. Swift? Do we know why yes. he moved? from Southern California to Idaho, and uh, you write that the Aryan Nations practice the Christian identity ideology. So what does that mean? What do they believe? Well, Christian identity believes that uh, white people are the true children of Israel. Um, Jews are, are the descendants of Satan? Jews are literally the descendants of Satan's uh, Satan mating with <laughs> with Eve. And, um, and yeah, non, it, and non-whites it, it, are mud people, right? Non-whites are soulless mud people who are just sort of created as a side project, apparently. Um, yeah, and so, right? It's yeah. So the only people with souls are white people, and it so. also preaches that America, including its government, is in the grip of a satanic satanic cabal that uses abortion as a kind of sacrifice. When they were recruiting, you say their followers muted their more bigoted beliefs and emphasized the hatred of modern secular society. Did that give them more of an appeal? Well, yeah, it enabled them to reach out to particularly, um, you know, very uh, uh, hardcore conservative people who um, had more or less that same shared that hatred of uh, modern liberal society. And uh, yeah, it, it, in, 
it definitely expanded their recruitment base. Let's put it that way. And you also, uh, yeah, go once, ahead. once you know, once you they were able to find that common ground, that it wasn't too far a step for these people. A lot of whom I would say, see, I mentioned the LDS Church uh, growing up That's around Latter Day Saints. Yes, and one of the aspects of this is that the uh, LDS Church back in the in the sixties and seventies had a really close connection to the John Birch Society. Virtually all of my neighbors uh, and their and my my high school pals and their parents uh, had copies of mm. uh, you know none dare call a conspiracy and you know these conspiracy tomes. Um, that were produced by the John Birch Society in those times. And that conspiracist element is what I found over the years was really the foundation of a lot of people's uh, uh, entree into the extreme radical right. And you say and, that you're probably immune to conspiracism because you got exposed to it at a pretty early age, 12, 13, 14. And even yeah, then, I was inoculated. You, you, you already decided that it wasn't to be believed. Um, but what effect did uh, being the Aryan Nation headquarters have on your community? Well, Are they the, still the, right, the, operating there? Yeah, you, you know, initially, I mean, they were initially just a disturbing presence. Um and I sat down with the publisher. I, you know, I was a 22-year-old editor of this paper, so my very early job. And, and we reached what we thought was the astute decision not to cover them hmm. uh, because we thought we were they were just going to be, <laughs> um, uh, you know, they were just trying to get publicity and we weren't going to give it to them. Uh, they were just looking for attention. Could right? you spot and which the, of your neighbors might be attracted yeah yeah there's always that possibility um but you know yeah just we didn't want to give him a platform for recruitment and um but that that pretty much fell by the wayside within a couple of years especially you know as the tide of criminality that accompanied this organization uh really washed over the region and it, you know, culminated in 1984 with the first order uh, rampage. These guys robbed like 23 banks and armored cars and uh, assassinated a radio talk show host in Denver. Mm. So, uh, you also uh, examined the 11-day 1992 Ruby Ridge standoff in Boundary County, in Idaho, where you grew up, uh, where white supremacist convert. Randy Weaver refused to surrender to U.S. Marshals on a federal firearms charge. What had led him to convert? Well, the, they, he and his wife, Vicki, had moved out to Idaho um, as real hardcore fundamentalists who believed that the end of the world was coming. Hmm. And they wanted to find a place away from the chaos where they could possibly survive the end of the world. And... Uh, you know, they were very much end times believers. So how did that wind up leading to a standoff in his home? Well, they well, once they got to Idaho, once they got to the panhandle, they wound up uh, in the same circles. They wound up attending Aryan congresses and uh, gatherings of the Aryan nations because they, all, they shared that same sort of apocalyptic, apocalyptic belief. And among the people he got to know, uh, while there was uh, a couple of guys named uh, John and David Trockman mm -hmm. from Western Montana who would drive from Western Montana all the way to Hayden Lake to participate in these gatherings. And uh, the ATF believed that Dave Trockman was uh, smuggling guns over the Canadian border and had was undertaking an investigation of him. And they knew that that Randy was uh, friends with Dave Trockman. And so they decided to try to, well, they had an informant who was actually working with Rand, with Randy, uh, and Randy promised to uh, give him some sawed-off guns. And when he finally did, um, basically the informant turned the evidence over to the ATF. The ATF came and, and uh, arrested him. And uh, judge let him out on bail, 
He returned to his home on Ruby Ridge and uh, proceeded to engage in a uh, long standoff his with wife federal and son were killed. Yeah, ultimately, you know, they sent some um, uh, marshals up to the mountain to try to do some reconnaissance. And while they were doing the reconnaissance, uh, Weaver's son and some people, and Weaver and his son and, and uh, one of their friends uh, encountered these marshals. Uh, the marshals shot their dog to yeah. silence it, and the sun returned fire and there was this exchange of gunfire and at the end of which a marshal was dead and so was sammy weaver the sun does one uh, thing lead to another didn't the ruby ridge incident lead to the beginnings of the patriot militia movement after yes the, after the 1993 yeah. raid on the branch davidian compound in, in waco texas well, so the Branch do, do Davidian compound is really a, they were not, they were separate phenomena, but those two incidents in general were, became the foundation of the militia movement, as they call it, this idea to, you know, they were going to make it a, a, a specific strategy to form these militia cells that could um, stand up against government tyranny and prevent incidents like Ruby Ridge and Waco from happening. And then two years later, in 1995, Timothy McVeigh set off a bomb outside the federal building in Oklahoma City that killed 168 people. Do these incidents tie together at all? Does one lead to the other? Yeah, sure. Well, McVeigh was inspired by uh, the Ruby Ridge and um, particularly Waco incidents. He he had spent some time at Waco during the standoff down there. And... uh, so, yeah, he, when he bombed the uh, federal building in Oklahoma City, it was on the two-year anniversary of the Waco uh, disaster. And um, it was he specifically intended it as revenge against, I mean, that was the FBI office that or the ATF office that was in charge of um, the a lot of the Waco stuff. So they, you know, um, and he was, you know, uh, McVeigh was a dedicated white supremacist. He sold copies of the Turner Diaries, which was this racist blueprint, uh, a, a novel, as it were. But it was had been ser- had served as the blueprint for um, a lot of groups, including the Order, uh, to commit acts of terrorism in the name of white supremacy. And so, um, you know. He, uh, McVeigh was very much part of that world and was acting on those motives. And so was uh, the man who bombed the uh, Olympics, the Atlanta Olymp- Olympics a year later. Um, he didn't kill as many people. He only killed one person, um, but, but uh, injured a bunch of others. But you write uh, that these acts of violence were attacks not only on innocent people, but on democracy. Is yeah. that why you decided to focus your career in journalism on right-wing extremism? Yeah. Well, it was, as I mentioned, it was when, when after Oklahoma City happened that uh, Father Bill basically talked me into, um, convinced me that there needed to be journalists who had institutional knowledge, uh, you know, of these movements, had historical understanding of them. And we're able to immediately place these acts uh, in the context of, you know, what motivated them and the under underlying ideology. Uh, their frustration, at the, his frustration, as well as that of many others at the time, was that so many journalists uh, would only report on right-wing extremism when uh, something terrible happened and they would parachute into the story and do very shallow coverage as a result. And so, you know, as it happened, there we actually I actually had a really good example of somebody who did uh, treat right-wing extremism as a dedicated beat who was working at the time. His name was Bill Moreland and he was uh, he was a longtime cops and corpse reporter for the Spokesman Review in Spokane, Washington. And um, Bill was pretty much my model for you know how to do this stuff, um, and uh, we Bill just passed away last year. So, my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is David Nywert. 
His latest book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy, published by Melville House Press. Um, you, uh, What are the, the central beliefs and fears that drive the radical right now? Uh, is it all about immigrants and minorities replacing the white majority? Well, it's either that or it's the supposed existential threat of transgender people, <laughs> or mm. or maybe it's uh, rumors uh, trying to uh, kidnap our children and and drink their adrenochrome. Uh, you know, it, it, it's actually a whole it's a pretty broad menu of ideas that motivate them. They live in this sort of alternative universe comprised of conspiracy theories um, that is. Um, you know, the, it's a pretty it's a pretty broad universe now because there's so many people out there uh, doing conspiracism bullshit. Uh, but um, uh, in the yeah. future, don't use that word, okay? Sorry, my my bad. Okay. Um, um, at any rate, uh, doing the conspiracism stuff and um, you know making the. Um, Making a making a profit from it, but they in the process, of course, they've basically brought about just by the sheer volume of their work, what I would call a sort of uh, epistemological crisis in the country, where we're unable to determine um, what's true and what's not, where yeah. where we can uh, separate fiction from reality. What about the uh, accelerationist idea that modern civilization is a poison and that? Fascism is the solution, or they may not call it fascism, but some variant of it. Yeah, um, that's that's exactly what they do. Um, that and, and it, I mean, fascism is essentially right-wing populism of this type, non-metastatic, and it always has been. Uh, and it means that they particularly focus their conspiracy theories on these fears of, um, you know, replacement of the white race, uh, fears of being controlled by a secret cabal of, of Jews, uh, these fears that, um, you know, their culture is under attack. And a lot of this just is, you know, that that's what, uh, you know, Donald Trump based a lot of his campaign around. It's what the Fox News watching right has been focused on for the last six years, at least, and uh, even before. And and a lot of this, you know, did grow out of the Tea Party movement between 2009 and 16, um, because that was where we really saw uh, extremist ideas making their way into the mainstream. It was certainly where I saw all these patriot movement beliefs that I got familiar with in the 1990s becoming mainstream within the Republican Party. And, um, you know, that was also the movement that essentially gave rise to Donald Trump. And, and I think that um, this, you know, it's just been a growing tide of right-wing extremism that essentially has taken over the Republican Party um, and has turned them into, turned them from a... a conservative movement into a travesty of conservatism. They're actually extremely radical. And uh, yeah, they they are hostile to democracy. But haven't we seen something similar around the world with the strengthening of right-wing authoritarian leaderships in Italy, Brazil, Hungary, Poland, Germany, Turkey, England, Sweden, the Philippines? They, do they have much in common? Yeah, well, there there are so we're definitely seeing this as an international trend, um, and a lot of this, frankly, originates from Russia and Vladimir Putin and his uh, his operatives. Certainly in Europe, Putin and his uh, his world uh, have played a big role in the rise of extremist movements like the Alternative for Deutschland. Uh, and the uh, the fascist party that is elected the recent prime minister in Italy um, certainly he has a long-standing relationship with with Orban in Hungary as well as Erdogan in, in Turkey um, and a lot of this 
fundamentally is um, basically the destruction of democratic states with and replacing them with uh, business-oriented autocracies mm -hmm. um, or really only, only marginally business-oriented really what they are is uh, kleptocracies in the, in the shape, you know, like, uh, like Russia and Putin. And um, they're being sponsored not just by these uh, foreign government entities, but also by uh, billionaires, uh, global billionaires who are actually hostile to democracy itself. This includes, of course, the the rulers of Saudi Arabia and uh, and then people like Peter Thiel, who are explicit about their hostility to democracy. You've said that following the Great Depression, Republicans and Democrats quote, agree to defend democracy and defend the values of democracy because it benefited them all by following FDR's program. Um, when did the Republican Party change, or has it been something that's been happening all along? I mean, McCarthy came along after FDR. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, no, they, I mean, that's would actually, McCarthy I would say— McCarthy be related to, the, uh, to all of this, or was he yes. an anomaly? No, I mean, the um, the Republican Party definitely had, it was always uh, very conservative anyway, uh, even though it was the party that defended the rights of black people for the most part. And that did start to change during FDR's years, particularly uh, during the efforts the to... Yeah, yeah, that's right. They were the party of Lincoln, and certainly at the turn of the century, still uh, black people tended to vote Republican. Um, but by the time of FDR's tenure, you know, the uh, um, that started to change, particularly during the fight over anti-lynching legislation, which FDR championed, but he was heavily opposed by all of those Southern Democrats who who wound up, you know, generally. Uh, uh, filibustering those bills and uh, defeat, and they were defeated in the, at the time. But um, that was sort of the beginnings of the Democratic Party's turn towards um, sensitivity to civil rights. And the Dixiecrats, <laughs> and, many of them, and many of the Dixiecrats changed parties. Yes, eventually those Dix Dixiecrats who objected to FDR and Truman in 1948 and formed their own party briefly, uh, eventually are, were the people who, by the late 60s and mid-70s, uh, converted from, left the Democratic Party and joined, or left and uh, joined the Republican Party, including Strom Thurmond, the leader of, of the Dixiecrats. And um, those people were... Um, you know, and there were some people who were actually active in the Democratic Party who um, had been active in the Dixiecrats, people like Robert Byrd, who eventually changed their tune and, and apologized for their promotion of segregation and that sort of thing. Uh, but they were relatively few. For the most part, we actually just saw a lot of these old segregationists become Republicans. Um, it was what... Um, what Nixon called uh, the Southern strategy. And it was basically a strategy to appeal to uh, conservative Southern Democrats and recruit them as new Republicans. And so in the 70s and, and really by the early 80s, this uh, conversion had become a full-on phenomenon, and particularly during the Reagan 80s. And a lot of, uh, there were a lot of Southern Democrats who became Republicans and uh then led the fight against civil rights from that position. Didn't the election of Barack Obama in 2008 set off a rash of militia activity? The number yeah. of 131 recorded militia groups in 2007 rose to 512 in 2008 and 1,360 by 2011. I don't know yeah. how many there are now. No, they, that was actually their apex. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they, we saw definitely during the initial um, 
during the initial Obama years, we certainly saw this massive surge of people uh, joining militias and forming paramilitary organizations. And that was also when we saw organizations like the Oath Keepers being born. Uh, that was Proud when uh, Stuart, Rhodes, Stuart Rhodes started the Oath Keepers. And, you know, what, what actually happened then was that uh, paramilitary organizing became um, more diffuse, but actually also more common. Um, so there weren't quite as many uh, uh, pure militia numbers as we saw in 2011 by 2014 or 14 or 15. The, their numbers had declined, but there were many more um, organizations promoting uh, the militia concepts, the paramilitary concepts, as, as well as I think the underlying um, movement concepts, which were they call constitutionalism. Um, and, you know, by by then in 2014 or 15, if you went out to rural America, particularly the the West or the Midwest, and you talk to people, you would find have found that these constitutional ideas, constitutionalist ideas had become um, basically conventional wisdom for people living in rural areas the idea that the the sheriff is the is the the premier law in the country you know is the law of the land and he he has supremacy over federal agents and that sort of thing um that had become very common and that was what you know standoffs like the one in uh, the bundy standoffs in nevada and then later in in the Malheur, were all about those. They were predicated on the same ideas. Do you, have the these groups QAnon, the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, been hurt by all of the uh, the convictions of their leaders for their involvement in the January sixth insurrection? Um, some of them were, some of them weren't. Some of them built their career on it. They're, they're recruiting yeah. as a basis. That becomes a basis of their recruitment. Yes, it does. It does. Be, it forms um, really a platform for them, and by the fact that you know they're getting a large amounts of publicity for it, uh, that just platformed them even further. Well, how does the radical right recruit, grow, and communicate with its groups? Well, there are several ways. The biggest right now, of course, is the Internet. Uh, they, they use social media. They use um, platforms like these days, they particularly use uh, Telegram and, and the platforms that they uh, that they can do this stuff in private on. For a long time, they were using Facebook and uh, Twitter, but a lot of them have been booted off those platforms, although um, a lot of these groups still actually organize their activities, you know, their their protests and their rallies. They'll post them up on Facebook. They'll have entities that still have Facebook accounts. And uh, they put a lot of their stuff up on there. But um, a lot of the recruitment is go goes on. And, you know, the place has been going on since um, 2010 or so when we saw the alt-right come Come to its come into age uh, between 2010 and 2013, and um, th that means that they're getting into chat rooms. Um, they take over even gaming chats. You know, for they're they're particularly fond of using you know computer games, and they'll get into the chats in that are part of the gaming experience, and they will recruit there. And this is real easy for them because a lot of these, uh, the gamers there are very young people who uh, have who are very impressionable and easy to recruit. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with David Nywert.
If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org. Or you can call 212-209-2950 during today's show. That's 212-209-2950. And we'll be happy to send you a copy, but don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. We thank you very much. And return now to David Nywert, his book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. is published by Melville House Books. He's an award-winning journalist now based in the Pacific Northwest and the author of, of a number of books. Um, but uh, and, and are they all kind of connected to what we're discussing here? Um, well, I did write a book about killer whales. <laughs> That's uh, not. <laughs> but yeah, pretty much all, all of my other books have been uh, discussions of right-wing extremism and its, uh, its effects. Um, I did also do a, a book about um, the uh, Japanese-American internment that was a historical project that I had worked on since the 90s. Um, but uh, but even it has elements of all of this because a lot of what caused the Japanese-American internment was uh, hysteria induced by uh, conspiracism. And... Um, you know, there's there were some surprisingly powerful connections between that project and my ongoing project reporting on right-wing extremism in the current day. Don't you regularly attend far-right rallies as an investigative journalist? Are they aware mm-hmm. that you're there as a journalist, the other people? Well, I don't advertise it, but, you know, my my style as a journalist has always been to just try to be a fly on the wall mm-hmm. and listen to what they say. So they talk um, to you about it tell you, they tell you their ideas? Yeah, yeah, generally speaking. I, although what my preference is to listen to them speaking among themselves mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, my experience with right-wing extremists is that when they're talking to a mainstream reporter, they become extremely performative and try to put on sort of an image and uh, they have very little compunction about uh, being disingenuous and misleading. So uh, I've found that they are more honest with each other and more frank. And so that's what I that's where I tend to listen to them. It's just and as well as I, I, I listen to their their own let them use their own words. Uh, but um, you know I don't count on uh, approaching them and getting an actually honest answer out of them because. Yeah, my experience is that uh, they rarely ever answer in good faith. So. How much does racism motivate the radical right? You write, quote, an American form of racism would manifest itself in its own distinct way, swaddled in red, white, and blue bunting, demanding fidelity to Christian principles, and pronouncing its innately seditionist politics patriotism. Yeah, well, that's how I um, essentially describe the Patriot Movement. You know, they are, and the is Patriot race Movement. Is key to all of this, or can you uh, not be a racist and still, because I do see sometimes at these rallies, I, I see an occasional African-American face. Sure. Well, that doesn't mean that they don't. See, a lot of people make that mistake. I mean, obviously, Enrique Terrio, uh, leader of the, was one of the leaders of the Proud Boys. He was, uh, he's a, a Cuban man uh, of dark skin. Um, and you'll see a lot of people with, um, who are non-white showing up to these things. Uh, one, one of our leading uh, Proud Boy thugs out here on the West Coast was a Samoan man named uh, Tiny Toisi. Um, and it, those guys I actually do talk to because I'm trying to figure out what their thinking is. And uniformly what I've found is that that they also come from this um, very sort of conspiracist Bircher-style uh, background. They're all very arch-conservative but they also, um, and so they agree with a lot of the politics. And what what they mostly share is the animus towards people on the left. Um, 
And what they also share is the profound authoritarianism. Uh, they have authoritarian personalities, which is not surprising because authoritarian personalities are observed uh, across every uh, spectrum, every part of the spectrum of human personalities, of human populations. They occur everywhere. Well, and, talk, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. And so, so yeah, my what I found was that these guys weren't coming for the white supremacy so much as they were for the authoritarianism. And you say, talking about authoritarianism, that Vladimir Putin is the single most important figure in the spread of radical right messaging and leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, but doesn't he have advocates both on the left and the right? Um, yeah, although the people on the left who advocate for Putin are, uh, I, I would just say uh, if they're actually what the left is about, then I wouldn't want to have anything to do with the left uh, because, you know, they're fundamentally authoritarian as well. How would you describe the current relationship between the Republican Party and the radical right? You said the current Republican Party may be too toxic to change. So do we need a new party? That might be what has to happen. I'm not sure what's going to happen to the Republican Party. I can't see um, I can't see it, uh, it succeeding uh, farther down the road because I think it's gradually turning a lot of people off. Um, but, um, you know, I've been wrong before. I do think that, um, yeah, there, I mean, obviously I think there's a place in, there's a necessary role for conservative ideas to play in our political discourse. Um, I think generally speaking, we could set, point to a number of, uh, various places, including, um, prohibition as examples of where, you know, conservatives were actually right uh, and have provided a, a necessary restraint on, uh, on you know, the, a lot of progressive projects because, yeah, prohibition was a progressive project. Um, so, um, you know, th there are times when I think that conservatism plays a really important role in our discourse, but What's happened to the conservative movement in this country is that it has, like I say, it's become a travesty of conservatism. It's not actually conservative at all. My guest is David Nywert. Uh, his latest book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy from Melville House Books. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You called Charlie Kirk, Steve Bannon, and Alex Jones conflict entrepreneurs. <laughs> What's their role in the rise of extremism in this country? And why do they have so much power with their followers? Well, I, I think they're very well funded and very well financed, which is what gives them power. But, uh, yeah. And, and who's financing them? Oh, I, I you know, they're... Uh, they have a lot of different sponsors, but basically it's folks who are who share their um, essentially their right wing populist worldview, their their hostility to liberal democracy. And uh, a lot of them are, you know, they'll range from people like Peter Thiel and uh, the, the DeVos family to um, you know, to the Koch brothers, as well as as many other uh, billionaires out there. But they also include, I mean, we've seen financing, for instance, a lot of the, the militias and paramilitary organizing are people who own like um, construction companies and, uh, you know, large construction companies. And they're very wealthy and they have a lot of wealth to throw around. And they will dedicate their wealth to helping finance uh, some of these militias and some of these uh, far-right extremists. You predict that smaller insurrections will be directed at more localized organizations, our state legislatures, school boards, city councils, even libraries. Uh, mm -hmm. What's the goal there? Is, is that also a way to get more followers? It serves multiple purposes yeah one of them is to sort of uh, uh, draw as a recruitment it's a recruitment tactic 
because what they do, of course, is what they've been doing for the last five years, which is engaging in this very performative street theater uh, that is all about uh, engendering this narrative about, you know, how America is threatened by this radical left, these radical leftists out there on the streets and um, portraying themselves as, you know, innocent Americans, innocent conservative Americans who just want to have their own free speech, right? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I've covered about 17 of these events. And what these guys were turning out for, of course, was just to cause violence on the streets of urban liberal areas, uh, Portland, Seattle, uh, San Francisco in particular, but they do it all around the country. Um, and, you know, the, in the end, uh, what they were really about was um, causing violence, bringing street violence to and threats and intimidation to um, these communities. And so now we're seeing it devolve into scenes like the one in Glendale, California last week when uh, these proud boys all turned out, and I don't think any of these guys actually are parents in the in the school district that they're turning out to protest. But they're they you know have been effectively shutting down school board meetings in Glendale. And how does how do people fight? We we're pretty much out of time. But how? Uh, what's the role of government in addressing these things? Uh, the proud boys, the patriots, the oath keepers, Christian nationalists who continue to organize and threaten violence. Well, I, I think there are a couple of things. One, we need to take very seriously uh, the f reality that a lot of these organizations have actually infiltrated our police forces. And um, that presents a real problem in terms of having effective law enforcement when we deal with these folks as they commit their inevitable acts of criminality. Um, because a lot of times, as we saw during the, the Proud Boy events, um, the police would turn their backs on hmm. whatever these right-wing extremists were doing and ignore it. So what needs to be done to infiltrate these groups to deflate them and take away their power? Uh, are there any people out there who uh, have good ideas that you know of? Um, I mean, the best ideas that I know of uh, involve basically disempowering them as much as possible, deplatforming them from social media, that sort of thing. Um, basically, we shouldn't. If it's a lot of this is really pretty old principles that if you want to have tolerance in a society, you can't have intolerance. It's the, the, they're like matter and antimatter. They can't exist in the same place. So, you know, uh, speech that promotes intolerance and, and uh, voices intolerance uh, should be rubbed off of social media. It shouldn't be allowed on social media. Um, and I don't think that that's too hard of a... Uh, uh, standard to have, but um, you know the um, the people who so a lot of that is sort of at the large level. I think at the local level, what ordinary people can do is basically stand up for democracy in real fundamental ways. Um, don't let these people bully you around. Don't let them bully your school boards into submission to remove. Uh, books that they claim are, are promoting critical race theory or that are grooming children for but simply by acknowledging the existence of LGBTQ people, um, you know, which is what's happening now. Um, don't let them do that. Stand up at the polls and uh, don't allow them to take over your school boards and your city councils, as many of them are deliberately trying to do. Um you know, real, real simple stuff. Should we be surprised by the infighting that we're seeing? Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert or uh, Tucker Carlson and Fox News? I wouldn't put too much stock in that. They do that all the time. That's how they are. I mean, one of the things I've come to know about the right wing, the far right wing over the years is that it's largely comprised of some of the most unpleasant and, and intolerable people on earth. They're, they're contentious, they're cranky, they're, uh, they have huge egos, everything's about them. Uh, they're narcissists of the worst order. And um, 
they always fight amongst each other because that's their nature. They're, they're just like a nest of vipers. So, yeah, that they're, that they're biting each other shouldn't surprise us, and it doesn't really mean anything because eventually they all get over it and, and link arms back together and and do this do the thing that they always do. It does mean that they're it does mean that they're not as united as they like to make us think they are. And that's just a reality also. Well, Fox News continues to have very high ratings. So there are and no matter what we hear in the news about Donald Trump's legal problems, he still maintains the support of a large segment of the American population. So is this going to continue no matter what? Um. Well, the right wing, radical right wing has never gone away as long as I've been reporting on them, which is a long time. Uh, they never give up. They uh, always keep doing their thing. They always keep working, always keep trying to insinuate themselves within the mainstream of American society as well as American politics. Um, so, yeah, they're not going away anytime soon, but uh, their power and influence can definitely is something we can definitely do something about. I mean, for a long time, certainly when I started reporting on them in the 70s and 80s, uh, they were very much fringe thing. And that's ideally, I mean, I, I don't think they'll ever go away completely, but uh, I think the more they can be placed on the fringe and kept there, uh, the better off the rest of us will be. Well, far-right groups hope to organize a system of what's called plutocratic authoritarianism. What is that? Well, that's that's basically, you know, uh, Peter Thiel supporting or underwriting these um, far-right organizations. It's it's wealth, wealthy, you know, the wealth is, uh, there's a lot of wealth in this country that is actually financing a lot of this far-right organizing. And uh, the far-right organizing is what's going to bring about, you know, the authoritarian rule, especially if they have people like, uh, you know, if they have events like January 6th. Um, well, was it January 6th a failure or has it been a success on some level? Well, it certainly was a failure as far as that, um, as far as, you know, taking over the or replacing democracy goes. But it actually succeeded in advancing the idea that a lot of the underlying ideas that the radical right runs on, including uh, this idea that, you know, that Trump had the election stolen from him. Um, and people still that believe that. People, people who, yeah, and there and a lot of people out there also believe that the the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th are patriotic heroes. I mean, that's. Actually, a pretty common sentiment to uh, out there in in the rest of America to consider these guys political prisoners. In the the two minutes we have left, is there anything you want to add? Well, um, mostly, you know, I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to, honestly, is that we do find ourselves in this conundrum, and it's and it's a really hard thing to overcome. That. Um, People, a lot of the people uh, that are uh, have fallen down these conspiracist rabbit holes, these far right rabbit holes, and have been um, overtaken by it are really, you know, a lot of them are friends and family and people like that that we have, you know, uh, experience with and and background with, and, and in a lot of cases, love for them. Um, and I have so, a how do you deal I can with no that? longer I mean, talk to? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, or they're, you know, they're your neighbors or whatever, you know, and how can you talk to them? Um, and I think a lot of ultimately we have to decide that, you know, the ones who are really far gone, uh, we pretty much have to let go. Um, and the ones that we really love and care about, you know, if you want to pull them out of these rabbit holes, it's a long, hard row to hoe. It takes a lot of work to pull people out of these rabbit holes. Um, so we're going to see this for quite a while still. And, yeah, and, and authoritarianism is a hell of a drug. It's practically addictive. That's why you know people turn their Fox News on and leave it on all day because it gives them their five minutes hate, twenty four hours a day. You know, and um, 
it's so how how do you pull people out of that um and should we you know should we make concessions to them in the process of doing so and i strongly recommend not making any concessions not giving into them i think we have to ultimately have to play hardball with them i don't think that we can treat them as good faith interlocutors uh in some cases you may have to simply uh basically write them off as uh uh, viable contributors to democratic discourse. And we have uh, to leave it there, David. I'm sorry. Yeah. David Tywert's yeah, book good. is the, Ameri- the Age of Insurrection, the Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy from Melville House Books. I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Kwan Allison for all of her help in preparing this segment and to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep-dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off for this week, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you uh, on, on weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and keep the station coming to you on a regular basis. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy by David Nywert, N-E-I-W-E-R-T. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever you're comfortable with, for as long as you're comfortable with it. It allows us to plan for the future which we really appreciate. (laughs) And we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you're doing in regularly to let it locate at large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org by calling 212-209-2950 to play your part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again next Tuesday when my guest will be Frank DeCotter, who will be discussing his new book, China After Mao. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.